Good morning, guys. If you will, take out your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 37. It's where we're going to kick off today. John 18, 37. And I know it's stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down. But I'm going to ask if you are physically able to stand for the reading of the word. If you would, please do. John chapter 18, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. Let's let that sink in for a second. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I ask God that you would kick us off the throne of our hearts today. Quell, just end our rebellion now. And take over the throne of our hearts. Be our king. Rule. Reign, give truth to our hearts, so that out of those hearts, Lord, that your word may overflow, and out of those hearts, Lord, good things will be done in and through us. Help us to realize that we are under a rule of a king, and that you have given us a great task to do in this world. To glorify your name. We thank you for the opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Our theme for Christmas this year, our HCC, Hope Community Church theme, is that the King is here. The King is here. On December 22nd, we are going to celebrate that together at the Don Gibson Theater, right? December 22nd from 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and 6 o'clock last year at the Don Gibson. We had 1,400 people come to our services at the Don Gibson. We're hoping to exceed that this year so that people can hear the great and wonderful news that the King is here. Each of those words in our theme has meaning. When we say the, what we mean is, is there is only one, Right? There is only one. Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one God in this universe. There is only one sovereign Lord who rules over everything. His name is Jesus. The King is here. When we say King, what we mean by that, we are indicating that Jesus' rightful status as King and ruler and sovereign over all things, all people, everywhere, all universes, all galaxies. He is the King of all. Jesus says, even in this chapter or this verse that we read today in chapter 18, that this was his purpose for coming, was to be the King. And to establish that throne in our hearts forever. When we say that Jesus is the king and the king is here, we have to define what is is. I feel a little bit like Bill Clinton right now. Some of you guys remember that? Defining what is is. Is, what we mean when we say is here is this is a statement of fact. We are making a statement that Jesus is truth and he has Come. It's not that he will. It's not that he may. It's that he is come to this earth. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Not that he will give, not that it will happen. He did. He gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world may be saved through him, he is here And when we say 
the king is here. What we are proclaiming in that is that Jesus came and that babe was born, but that babe dies and died and he is risen forever again. The tomb is still empty. No matter how many times you check, he's not there. He is risen from the grave. The resurrection is true. He is here. Here. And we can't wait to celebrate that. Christmas. When we say that the king is here, a guy named Luke who wrote about the birth of Jesus in one volume in his gospel called the Luke, he wrote a sequel to it. And the first line in his sequel in a book called Acts, he says, in my first book, I wrote all that Jesus began to do and teach. But if Jesus would have died, he wouldn't have wrote began to do and teach. Jesus rose. So that means that Jesus is still doing and Jesus is still teaching today. He is still moving. Luke, after he wrote that first book, he writes 24,229 more words over a 30-year span in 28 chapters saying of what Jesus kept doing and what Jesus kept teaching. How did Jesus do that when he was dead? He did it through the power of his Holy Spirit in people like you and me, ordinary Joes who were fishermen and tax collectors, people still going around being used by his Spirit to change the face of the planet. The, dead, or the sick people were still healed. The poor were still fed. The lost were still saved because his people, like you and me, continued to do and teach as the Spirit led him. Why did these people do that? Why did these people in the book of Acts, why did they let their livelihoods be in danger? Why did they risk their very lives for this thing? It's because they knew that the king is here. They knew that Jesus was their king. He's their king. Now, I know, guys, from an American mind, that's difficult for us to listen to and hear. I taught U.S. history for two decades of my life. I taught you to hate kings, to despise monarchies. In the American mind, we are taught that we should not like power being in the hands of a few. And heaven forbid that power would get in the hands of one person. We fought against that to create this great country called America. We, our forefathers risked their lives and their livelihoods so that we would not have to be under the rule or the thumb of one ruler of under one king. A few years back, I went to a, a AP U.S. history training in Charlotte, UNC Charlotte. And I was in the room with 35 other teachers from all over the country. Every state, I think, was you know represented except for the northern ones. Um, and we were there, and we got around in these uh, little small groups, and the first questions that we were asked was this, hey guys, what is the best form of government? And they gave us a list of, a list of over 60 governments on this piece of paper. And all of these teachers, AP teachers from all around the country, we sat around and we tried to figure out what is the best type of government that there is. And we all... Nobody knew what we were talking about in our group separately, but my group came up with the, the best form of government is a monarchy. It's the best form of government. It's the easiest. It's the best. And when we met corporately, everybody got together, and every single group had said the same thing. A monarchy is the best. But we all had this stipulation to it. Every group, bar none. It's the best one as long as there is a good king. As long as the king is good. Guys, we have a good king. We have a great king, and he is here. He is here. The king is here with us. He can be here today to rule in your heart, to rule your head, to rule your home, to rule this church. What's that mean when he rules us is that the king is here, and he calls the shots in your life now. When I prayed a while ago, I prayed, God, dethrone us off of our hearts. Kick us off of our hearts so that we don't rule and reign and make the decisions anymore. When we say that the king is here, we mean that he is making decisions in our lives. He is telling us what to do with our talents. He is telling us what to do with our fortunes. He is telling us what to do with our families. He is telling us what to do when how we live and where we live even. Is the king here? Is the king here? <laughs> Is he here? To each individual, I could go around and just is he there? Is he ruling your heart? Is he telling you what to do? Is he calling the shots? Because let me tell you something. If he is, if we allow Jesus to be the king at Christmas, 
There will still be people being healed. The poor will still be being fed here, and the lost will still be rescued. They will be rescued through his people. Our King Jesus has told us nothing clearer in his teaching that the poor should be cared for. Those who are helpless should be helped by us. Those who are in need should have their needs met by us, his church, in his name. And that's why I can't wait today to see how God's going to stir in your heart through our Compassion International Day today. Our goal as a church today is for us to see 150 kids around this planet rescued from poverty through you. How are we going to do that? We partner with Compassion International to help these kids out of what's called extreme poverty. Extreme poverty means that these kids are living on less than $2 a day. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've been to those places around the world where I've seen and been in homes and in huts and in places with these children and their families that they're living in this extreme poverty. And it's bleak and it seems hopeless. But we have a chance today to bring them some hope through the compassion experience. If you've never been to those places around the world, I encourage you today, if you have not been to our compassion experience that's in the parking lot at our Shelby campus, take your families down there today. There's still room, right, Scott? There's time left to do that? Till three? Oh, it's free. Okay. Tomorrow night, I mean, or tonight at 7, tomorrow night till 7, you have the chance to go down. It's free. Take your family and walk through, and you can kind of see this virtual tour as you walk through of what it's like to live in these places where these kids live under $2 a day and kind of get a feel for what that's like. I'm going to kind of make a reference here to maybe see if that can, we can relate a little bit to that in Cleveland County, the average salary is $34,000 a year. That's $17.71 per hour. Okay, In Zimbabwe, it would take a worker who just makes $0.53 cent a day. It would take them almost 45 years to make what we make in one year. Compassion is a way in which we can help contribute to these areas where there is extraordinary poverty. 700 million people live on less than 2 a day around the globe. Every 30 seconds, a child dies from poverty or from a preventable disease that we can do something about. So since I've been talking, around 25 kids around the globe have died because of basic needs that we would just run to the drugstore for our kids for in a matter of minutes. They're dying all around us. Some of these, um, or some of these problems can be elim eliminated with only $38 a day. Through compassion. I'm sorry, a month. Did I say a day? Oh, my Lord. Somebody's going, I am. Anyway. Um, a month through compassion. And look, here's what I want you to understand. Guys, we're not doing the humanitarian thing right now. It's not the, the humanitarian thing to do. This is not the thing we're trying to do to throw up a commercial in the midst of our services today so that you can kind of get your heartstrings pulled at. That's not what we're doing. We are doing what Jesus has asked us to do. And to be a part of alleviating that poverty around the globe. And there is no other organization out there that's better for this than Compassion International. Let me share a few stats with you real quick. 83% of all of their money goes straight to programs to benefit the children. They have the highest possible standard rating with the Better Business Bureau. They have an A-plus rating with CharityWatch.com. 80% of their children are more likely to attend colleges or universities. 70 to 75% of them are more likely to become leaders in their churches and in their communities. And a 100% chance of every single child that we rescue will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Compassion Ministry. Every single one of them. So I could keep rattling on stuff about this today, about compassion and everything. But the best thing for me to do right now is to bring up one of our own partners with HCC, um, he is the, it's like a long title. He texted it to me last night, and I am not even going to try to do all that, so Scott can come up and do that. But I want you guys to welcome Scott Limerick up here with me. Hey, Scott. You won't have a seat there. I think your mic's already on, Scott. Okay. Yep. Great. Good so, morning. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I told you, yeah, you got yeah. yeah, to crane your neck to get around yeah. there yeah, to the Earls. Uh, we'll get to you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hey, uh, Scott, real quick, um, most of us here, I'm sure, are somewhat familiar with um, Compassion International. Mm -hmm. But uh, look, just tell us a little bit more about it, what it is, and, and kind of what it's not. Okay. Um, 
So what I wanted to do, if you okay with this, because you're like my brother, I can kind of say, I don't think you do know what compassion is, because I didn't. I, th- I thought I did. I, d- I thought compassion was this um, ministry where white people in America rescued the little black kid in Africa at the Michael W. Smith concert. That's what I thought. <laughs> seriously. Is Michael W. Smith still alive? He's still alive. Yeah. Um, so. Seriously, that's what I thought it was. And, but what, what I didn't realize is how God was going to change me and my mindset um, because I'm sitting in front of you as a person who didn't believe that these kids existed. I thought it was a stock photo. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about my story, and you'll see where that skepticism comes from. But, um, and that's okay, because probably uh, until Billy Graham, maybe, um, the greatest evangelist who ever lived was also a skeptic, a guy named Saul. Um, and God kind of wrecked his heart, as you know. Um, and if you're a skeptic in the room about Jesus, I want you to know I'm your best friend, because I've got a brother who is still not following Jesus, but is a big-time skeptic, and I tell him all the time, dude, if you would just surrender, God's going to just use you, because your story would resonate with so many people. Mm-hmm. People that are skeptics, when they finally get it, it's kind of really, it's kind of hard to talk them out of what they believe then, and so that's what God was doing with me. So here's what compassion is. Compassion is not a feeding ministry, not saying that feeding people is wrong, but if I feed you every Thursday night, and Another ministry feeds you on Friday night, and your grandma or someone else feeds you on Sunday after church, pretty soon you become enabled, and there's no need to get up out of the poverty you're in, and you just let people keep helping you. Does that make sense? So we're not that. We believe, and just so you won't think I'm some calloused, mean person, um, we believe feeding ministries are great in times of emergency or catastrophe, but not long-term. We really don't think that changes people long-term. Compassion over a 60 to 70 year period, began uh, in, with a vision of a, of a chaplain in, um, at the end of the Korean conflict and the, the orphans from the Korean War that were just living on the streets. They were fatherless and motherless and, and extremely poor and they were just dying. He literally, a guy named Everett Swanson, was, as the war was ending, was walking in the streets of Seoul, South Korea and the people, the church leaders there were saying, what are you going to do about this poverty that you're going to leave here now? And he said, what are you talking about? And this is a true story. And these kids were laying in the street. And the soldiers and the sanitation crews would every morning go and kind of poke the kids. And if they didn't roll over and they were dead, they scooped them up with a shovel and threw them in a truck. If they were alive, they just let them roll over and try to survive another day. And that's how it started. It literally started that way. And so this guy came home. He said, there's got to be a way to attack this because, and I, again, this is going to sound so mean. I'm just, I'm from the hood, seriously. Like, we were the only white people on the street, and we had a saying we called, we keep it 100. That's kind of the way I do, so forgive me. Um, I don't mean to step on toes because my feet are just broken from people stepping on my toes. (laughs) But the truth is, I hate to say it like this, but the, the truth is so many times when you're, you're talking about helping people through orphanages, those things are fronts. It's like Haiti. If you pour money into some kind of help in Haiti, so much of that never gets to the cause. And he didn't want to do it that way. And he realized that throwing money at poverty doesn't fix it. Have you found that out yet? <laughs> you know what it does? If your kids keep coming to you for money, pretty soon they're 39 years old saying, Dad, I need, <laughs> what you got? Can you help a brother or what? Like, my daughter's 25, and she sends us a list of things she wants for Christmas. I said, Dad, you're 25 years old. You're a grown woman with a husband and a job. Hello. But which two would you really want from that list? You know how dads are with their daughters. But um, we, we believe, <laughs> Compassion found out, after years of trying this and trying that, and we measure outcomes religiously. It's the only thing we do like that, but we measure outcomes, and we found out that poverty is not just physical. As a matter of fact, the physical side to poverty is the smallest side to it. So, look, um, I've come from extreme poverty in America myself, so I've not had money, and then I was blessed to be in, you know, do well in business to where I've had money, and frankly, I'd rather have it. I'd rather have money, but what I found out is there's just a small percentage of poverty that is physical. You got to eat. 
you need some clothing, you need a roof over your head, you do need that, and it does help to have some money. But what Compassion found out, and if I could put it up on the screen, I would do that, but I didn't want to bore you to tears. Like It feels like, a, um, if those of you that go to Gardner-Webb or if you're in Burns, it feels kind of like a classroom here. So, And I'm a teacher, so I really want to put it up there. But if I could put it up there, we would put physical as, as, a, as a part of poverty, right? There is a physical aspect to poverty. But if you are in extreme poverty where kids are living on $2 or less a day, that tends to be a generational poverty. It tends to be something that's been going on. Your mom's that way. If, if she's in the home, your dad's usually not in the home. Your grandparents are that way, and your great-grandparents are that way. So there's an emotional side to it. And I tell people all the time. Um, so I, my son used to tell me all the time I thought I was black, right? And I said, no, that's vanilla ice. I'm cool. I'm, I'm cool being white, but I feel comfortable in that culture. Well, the dude that adopted me illegally at birth was as racist and country a white dude as you'll ever meet. I'm not making that up. I could tell you stories. You maybe have gone through that. He moved us when I was in the fifth grade to North Carolina. Now, how small a world is it that I get to serve churches in the entire southeast and I lived almost 25 years of my life in Rutherford County. Went to high school to East Rutherford High School, played baseball there. Um, some of my really good friends growing up went to Burns. Um, didn't have any friends at Shelby, but I had some friends at Crest. We hated Shelby. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I don't hate them. I don't no hate them. I want you to know that. That was our rival. No um, you know, like you've got Burns and Crest, but it's really Burns and Shelby. Ours was Burns and Central. Now it's really Burn. It was really East Rutherford and Shelby. But I grew up there. But he was. He had us living in a trailer park for a little while in um, over in the Shiloh community. So I've lived in the hood and I've lived in a trailer park. So I know both kinds of poverty. And guess what? They're just exactly the same. The skin color's different. It's the same thing. So it's not a white or black thing, it's a poverty thing. And there's an emotional side to it. If your father left when you were little and there's no dad in the home, you leave when you're 13, right? So there's an emotional side to it. There's also an educational side to it. Those of you that may be educators here, kids that live in Cleveland and Rutherford County and maybe what's next, Burke County, what's close? These, these counties where the kids come from some, some underprivileged homes, whether they're white, black, or Latino, they are behind the other kids educationally. There's an educational social side to poverty that you just don't understand until you go get out of your comfort zone and start trying to help. Because the first thing I used to say was, man, they need to get a job. Okay. I used to say that. I've worked at Farm Bureau Insurance for years and years and years before God kind of moved me into the ministry. And, and I would say that. And the people would say, okay, are you going to hire them? No. Well, then how are they going to get a job? They don't even know how to read and write most of the times. They certainly don't know how to uh, do a resume. And if they did, you wouldn't be impressed with it, right? So it's just so much harder to get out of. So there's an, um, a physical, there's an emotional, there's an educational side to it. But we believe it all starts spiritually. We really believe that. And that's what we do. We do holistic child development. And I saw it was a skeptic of it before I got there. I saw it with my, with my own eyes, tried to pick it apart, and I couldn't. I couldn't. I've never seen anything more transformational than what I saw and became a fan of compassion before they hired me. You, you need to hear that. Because some people think, dude, of course you're going to say that. They brainwashed you. You know how it is. I'm a coach, too. You know how you get your kids to try to buy into the program that you're doing? You're a baseball coach, right? You get that. This is why we do it. This is how blah, blah, blah. And the ones that don't buy in, they never really get it. The ones that buy in, bam, your brain washed them, they used to tell us. I, I was a fan of compassion before compassion called me. I want you to know that, right? Um, but what we do, we believe that if you holistically transform someone and you do it until they're around the age of 20, 21, and you take them out of the program and release them, what happens is you introduce them to Jesus and poverty starts to leave their life, not prosperity gospel, but poverty, that four-pronged part of poverty will leave your life when you meet Jesus. I'm just telling you, it did for me. Changed everything about me, everything about me. And if you saw where God brought me from to where he took me to, you would go, only God can do that. And we see it every day with thousands of kids at Compassion. So the end result is a... Is a for lack of a better word, I hate to use this word, a self-reliant adult that doesn't need your help anymore. 
and they're released into the community and they're changing the world. So our, our goal is life transformation and ending extreme poverty when we do it. So until you see it, you don't realize it's way more than just a little child packet that you're throwing $38 a month at. It really is way more than that. And you know, uh, I don't know how many guys are familiar with our ministry called Jobs for Life, uh, but we, uh, that is the way we alleviate poverty here with those who are around us. We, we get you know, probably 10 folks per week to come to us asking for you know, a power bill, phone bill, some type of assistance, and we do the same thing. We flip the list. And, uh, you know, we take that approach, hey, yes, we're here to help you because Jesus asked us to do that. But, hey, how about if we take this approach and, um, you know, begin with those spiritual pieces. Hey, Jesus created you. He created you to work. How is that? And, man, it, just, it, tra- it is a complete transformation um, instead of just giving them something that is going to, you know, maybe sustain them for a day or so. Uh, we were able this week um, uh, to go into Red Bridge's Barbecue. Um, we partnered with those guys, and uh, Natalie and Debbie have asked us to come in and just start teaching their employees the values of work. We start with those spiritual pieces and start to bring it in. And just, I mean, for the last two weeks, just you've seen, I mean, just lives changing in front of us with those employees. It's extraordinary when you take this approach to the alleviation of poverty instead of that more traditional approach. And Compassion certainly does that. That's why we partner with them. The, the principles, the beliefs are the same that are there. Hey, Scott, you told me, I, I sent Scott a text yesterday and said, hey, man, you're praying for you guys, praying for compassion, praying for these kids to be rescued. And uh, Scott sent me about a text said, man, I'm praying for that too. He said, I'm praying for us to be rescued as well, meaning, meaning us. And uh, I asked him last night, I said, hey, man, can you just explain that a little bit? So if you would explain that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, um, so my mom, a uh, little of my story, my mom had a woman at the well story. She's a hero of mine. And some people in her family get mad at me when I share some of this story, but when I was conceived. Um, I'm one of five kids, and we have different dads. You ever heard of that story before? Yeah. Um, the guy, she didn't know which one of the men she was messing with was my dad, right? And at the age of 50, she became a Christian, and I am telling you, and only Jesus can do this. I want you to hear this. No, no uh, self-help book. Uh, Tony Robbins, great guy, I'm sure. All that, all that stuff lasts for just a little while. Jesus is not a fad. Jesus will literally change your heart. Amen. You've become a different person. As Scripture says, a new creation. That's what he did with her. So from the age of 50 to, to 73, when she became a, um, a, a, a person that's walking the streets of gold, she died about five years ago, unexpectedly too. Still breaks my heart a little bit. But she was a totally different person. And I used to say, Mom, we need to tell this story. And she was embarrassed about it. Can you understand why, right? Um, but she didn't know any better. Her dad... Her, her dad was a piece of work, my grandfather, who I never met. And you know why I never met him? Because before I was even born, when my mom was like six years old, he was messing around with a bunch of women, and one of the women he was messing with got mad at him. I hate to laugh. Um, but she got mad at him when she found out he was married and wouldn't leave my grandmother and pushed him out in front of a bus and killed him. That is a true story. That's crazy to me. I said, Mom. They were doing that in 19, what, 40-something? She said, oh, please, son, they've been doing this forever. Your generation just brags about it. We kept it quiet. <laughs> I said, boy, did you keep it quiet. And so I, my wife and I talk all the time about how all of us have little secrets we really need to take to the grave with us. And I agree with that. Some of the things you share you shouldn't. The reason I share that with you is that's all my mom knew. That's what she knew. So there was no dad in her home. There was no dad in her mom's home, Right? And so it's a generational thing. And so um, we're, we're the only white kids on the street. This dude adopts us and moves us to North Carolina, right? And I became a skeptic because where I lived in Rutherford County was literally two rock throws from my house. A church was there. And I used to be bitter because why didn't the church come and help us? Because this guy, unfortunately, was an abusive alcoholic. Any, don't raise your hand. I just know this, that story is, is common in this room right now, right? And that's what he was, that's, you know, and he died when I was 13. So I'm one of five kids, none of us are twins, and we're all born within six years of each other. So my mom was pregnant for six years, right? And I'm going to get to your question in just a second. Um, the reason I say that is how much is that just like the poverty in the Dominican Republic I just saw three weeks ago? It's just like the poverty I saw in Peru in August, the poverty I saw in Nairobi, Kenya in February. It's the same thing. They speak a different language. Maybe their skin looks a little different. It's the same thing. 
It's no Jesus, N-O Jesus, and you just, your life just completely falls apart, and you just, God hands it over to us, and so um, he died when I was 13, and my poor mom knew how to do nothing. I mean, she knew he was kind of a tyrant kind of fella, and so I love to tell that story now. Even the people in the church I grew up in have no idea what was going on in their home, and a gentleman in our community, um, who is an, an angel to our family, um, had five kids of his own, a gentleman named Doyle Medford. Some of you may know him. He worked at, what were the two big plants back in the, PPG. Remember that? Is that still operating in Chelmsford? He worked there. When my father died, my adopted father died, I was 13 13 down to the age of seven. He had five kids of his own, and my mom had five kids, and I'm not making this up. That man didn't make room for one more. He made room for five more. Now, how in the world, to this day, I don't know how we got ten kids and three adults in that station wagon of his, and and bless God, none of us wore seatbelts, um, right? Y'all remember that, right? My mom could beat you to death <laughs> and drive with that hand. And uh, she could. Y'all ever been beat like that, right? But Doyle was just the kindest man. And I, I, don't, want to, I don't want this to be heavy because I want you to hear what God's done. Because I know he's done this for you too. And he was, he's getting you ready to be a rescuer because that's what he was getting me ready to do. And he used this man to teach me that. Because I had two sisters, two beautiful sisters that were abused by the other men that were trying to be fathers in my house. Didn't know it till I got older. But I asked them about Doyle. I said, did Doyle ever do some of that stuff? Because, you know, there, I'm, I hadn't always been a Christian. And I still, this is weird. Some of the men will get this. You know how ladies cry for no reason? And, so, and now I'm doing it. Men like to fight for no reason. I still like to fight. It's crazy. I still beat up a punching bag and all that. And I was like, if I could find the dudes that mess with my sisters, I would lay hands on them uh, <laughs> and pray. You men understand what I mean, right? Because men made us bigger and stronger not to hoard that over, but to protect and to provide. And Doyle was doing that. And so I was almost scared. And I asked both of my sisters, I said, did Doyle do that to you guys? They, they said, absolutely not. He was like Jesus to us. I wasn't a Christian, but that was the first time I saw a man act different, right? He was getting me ready to rescue kids and to be a father to the fatherless by a man that inconveniently basically raised 10 kids. His wife stayed home, and she helped take care of us. She's an angel. He's now in heaven. Who knows the throne room he's in, seriously, because he allowed God to get him out of a comfort zone and use him in that way. And that is why I wanted to talk to you about being rescued yourself. So I became a Christian when I was 21. My wife and I have been together 41 years. She's the only girl. How in the world is this true? So I come from a culture of, of just absolutely sexual mess, and she's the only girl I've ever been with. God is the only one that can do that. I'm serious. Her mom and dad didn't believe that I was different. They really didn't. I didn't become a Christian until four and a half years in. We'd been dating for four and a half years. Her mom and dad offered her a new car the night before we got married. Seriously, they didn't think that I'd changed. And I don't blame them. They weren't Christians at the time. They are now. And a lot of people have said, dude, what kind of car was it? Well, it was a Honda. It was a, it was a new Honda. Um, and she, every now and then, she'll drive by the Honda place, and she says, you know, that could have been me right there. Um, and if you know my wife, she's just, she, you know, you know how wives are. They, they know how to hit the buttons, right? Um, but I became a Christian at a revival because, listen, listen to this, because this girl was different. 
She was beautiful. I only started dating her because the only girl I've ever been in love with besides her dumped me, and I was all heartbroken and, you know, the, that kind of junk. So I started dating her, um, and, and her mom and dad said, you've got a curfew of this, this time. Now, you can see her a little bit longer if you go to church with her. Go to what? Go to church. If, so if I go to church, I can be with Kim. And they said, yeah, and I said, all right, I'm in. And so I started going to church for that reason. I'm serious. And while I was at church, I kept hearing something totally different that I'd never heard before. Not that you're one of those limericks from Ellenborough. Some of you that have some history know that name. Now, it's my adopted name, but I've still kept that name. And they were known for tearing up Ellenborough, which was, you know, I guess a metropolis at the time. But um, I've I've seen people in my family on the most wanted section in the, in the Shelby Star and the, the Daily Courier with my last name. And that just breaks my heart to see that, right? Um, but, but when you see that, right, you, you, you start hearing something different that maybe, maybe I do have a chance to be something different. I don't have to be an alcoholic, abusive dude like my adopted father was and like his father was, I found out, and his father. See what I mean by generational? And I became a believer, and everything changed. Now, there was a few things in my life that God didn't take away. I wished he had. There's, I tell people all the time, you've got sin in your life. Some of it, he completely takes it away. He takes away all the sin that you ask forgiveness for. But some of the habits you have, he'll take some of them completely away that day. Other ones, he'll put a dent in it, and some he won't even touch because it keeps you dependent on him. And... And so they saw some of the change, but they thought it was fake, and everything changed for me that day. And from that minute on, I've always tried to see if I could find kids that don't have a father and be a real, not, I'm not godly, but you know what I mean, a, 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 a God-like father to them. And I became a pastor um, about uh, 15 years ago, and it was while I was a pastor, and I went on a mission trip that the next phase of my life changed. I had gotten on the Christian treadmill. So some of you in this room are like I was, and you're bored with your walk with God now. You know how it's really exciting at first, and then it's like, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to check the box, and then I'm going to go, and you know, I'm going to pray a little bit and read my Bible every now and then, and then, can I be honest? Your life becomes boring and mundane. And without you and I knowing it, that boredom sets in, and it sets in not because God's boring. I tell people all the time, and I've got a heart for men. I do a lot of sports missions ministry and men, and I talk, tell them all the time, if you're bored with God, it's not God. It's because you and I have quit being obedient. We've shut our eyes to what God has commanded us to do. Jeremy just read verse after verse where God said, do this, do this, do this. And we don't. And so one of my favorite parts about what I get to do with Compassion, it's not the 150 kids that will be rescued today. And by the way, it's right at 150 already. First worship in Shelby just, we've, and our goal here today is to rescue at least 40 kids in this gathering and looking at a room this big. And, and some of you, I know y'all are wealthy. So the, um, <laughs> so we're going to do 40 with no problem, but the, here's my favorite part of it. It's not that the kids get rescued, because you've got to understand something. I want you to hear this as white, middle-class America, or lower-class. Everybody in, in America, believe it or not, is middle-class and upper-class compared to the world, but we don't think, well, oh, I don't, I don't hear that. Please, please, you're talking to someone who came from extreme poverty. Listen, I've lived in a house with dirt floors, I've lived in a house with no running water that had an outhouse. Who, show of hands, who's used the bathroom in an outhouse before? Let me see. Get, and when you watch know crazy, as I get older, the number of hands gets short, smaller and smaller. Listen, everybody knows that's a smell you'll never forget, right? That's a sound you'll never forget. <laughs> Amen? I mean, there's a, there's a buzz going on up under you there, right? So, I, I, I mean, bzz, there's like, you, what in the world? And there's flies everywhere. Um, remember, I'm from the hood. We keep it 100. So, um, but that's the truth, 
right? So I know what poverty's like, and I know we have plenty. Do you understand that God has given you more than enough, right? That's what one of the things compassion has taught me, is the opposite of poverty is not wealth. It's enough. And once I realize I have plenty, and he's given me more than enough so I can help other people have enough. He's not giving me everything I want, but he's giving me everything I need. And he'll change your wants to where that want list starts going, you know what? I can help kids, kids, kids. So what I learned is, uh, you, how many remember the movie Pretty Woman? Remember at the end of that movie when Richard Gere and Julia Roberts, it looks like they're not going to get together and the sappy music playing in the background. I told Jeremy about this. He went, okay, well, that's weird. Um, like, like Pretty Woman's on my top ten list, so I have to show my man card for that. But, um, but Braveheart's on there and Shawshank <laughs> and the men, the men movies. Yeah. But Pretty Woman, what I love about that is Rescue. And at the end of that, it looks like they're not going to get together, and the music's playing. Y'all remember this, right? And, and he says something like, well, it's still a good week. Some, a week we'll never forget. And the handsome young prince rescued the damsel in distress. Does anybody remember what she said back to him? And she rescued him. What was that? And she rescues him right back. I am telling you today, if you will quit saying what you can and can't do and realize there's nothing that God will, will not provide for you to do if you're obeying him. I'm telling you, every person in the room can rescue a child. If you'll do that, he's going to turn right around and rescue you right back. You're going to get off that Christian treadmill. I tell people all the time, if you'll just be obedient. Listen, you know where we like to live in America? In comfort zones and convenience. You rarely experience God in a real way in a comfort zone. Get out of the comfort zone, right over here where God's pushing you to go, right? Remember, if you're following God, you're always right on that border of faith and fear, always. <laughs> it is not boring when you're there, right? My brother, who I have so much respect for, is retired military, served everywhere. He talked about how, as a, as a soldier, he was in, in um, the movie Black Hawk Down. He was actually in in that operation in Mogadishu, he said, you have no idea what, what it's like to be afraid and go do it anyway. It's not an absence of fear. Fear's there. We all do that. Courage is when you go anyway, right? And I'm asking you to do that today and let God turn right around and rescue you right back. And just so you won't think I'm just, you know, mouthing the words, I didn't think the kids existed. I met my first child, hug, hugging and kissing my feet, crushed my heart because I didn't even think he existed at first and so we came back and my wife and I made a commitment to God for every year that God lets me stay at compassion we're going to add another child now I don't make what Jeremy makes I don't I'm not rolling like that but uh, <laughs> but but you know who is God this isn't about you and what you think you can do I'm telling you if you could just hear me it's about what God can do. And so we made a commitment. Every year at work Compassion, we're going to add another kid. Now, my wife is the practical. I got to see it on paper, as most women are. That's another thing in marriage counseling I used to tell them. The women just want a man with a plan. Just give me a plan. Quit flying by the seat of your pants. And men hate plans for the most part, right? So God's kind of got it rigged. So what we did is we just started our sixth year at Compassion, and we're now rescuing six kids. And every time we add a kid more money's left over in the budget. And I'm not making that up. That's not TV preacher stuff. My wife will tell you what he's telling you is true. So we, if God leaves us at compassion for 20 years, guess how many kids we're going to be rescuing? 20. So that's what I mean by being rescued right back. Scott's, Scott's hoping for retirement soon. Yeah. <laughs> hey, one thing I want you guys to know, too, is when you're rescuing a kid, we're rescuing kids from a whole lot more than just poverty. And Scott said something to me this week that has just stuck with me. I don't even think I've talked to you about that. Uh, but this morning it hit even closer to home. Um, Scott was telling me that uh, his wife's Kim, that, that the last few kids that they have um, rescued, they've, they've looked for the cutest little girl that they could find to rescue two times. And the reason, and, and from particular countries, uh, because they are being targeted for sex trafficking. And I woke up this morning, my bed, and my little six-year-old, or seven-year-old now, Desi's beside of me, and 
just warm as she can be in her bed, safe as she can be there with me and, 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 and Ashley. And I thought if somebody come in here to try to get her, there's nothing I wouldn't do. There's nothing I wouldn't do to, to, to prevent that from happening or if somebody grabbed her to rescue, out, rescue, her, rescue her out of that. And I thought, you know what, that's what we have an opportunity to do today. So I come in here this morning, the first thing I do for my family and Ashley is I, I find the cutest little girl I could find. And um, uh, little, her, little name's little, her little name's Moore. And I uh, can't wait to see what God's going to do with that. But when you're rescuing these children, guys, that, that $38 is going to, to mean so much more for them than just helping them get some food or some clothing or some shelter or some education. It's going to help them in a number of ways uh, to get them out of high-risk areas. So, um, you know, today what we're asking you to do is just make room for one more. Um, if you can, just make room for one more. You know, you Scott was talking about the guy who helped him and his family. To, to five more. Maybe that's five more for you that you're supposed to do. But guys, if you can, if y'all will um, play that um, video right now of the um, make room for one more. Can. Growing up as a child, life was very hard. And many other times that if we didn't have food, then we'd go to scavenge in the, in the dumping sites. I didn't have food the day before, neither the other day before. I only knew that I was hungry and I needed food. As a child, I grew up with a lot of hopelessness and I knew that death was the best thing for me. At the age of seven, I lost three family members. I lost my mom and I lost my stepdad. I lost my small brother, Patrick, because of the terrifying disease of HIV AIDS. In the middle of prostitution. Feeling so helpless. Poverty made me feel less valued. It made me feel not loved. It made me feel uh, less of a human. It's so hard when you have not eaten dinner and knowing you'll not have lunch and you're not assured for dinner the following day. It's just feeling very helpless, like things are not going to be better. I lost four of my siblings due to preventable diseases. Uh, three of them died before the age of five. My sister, we were sleeping with her in the same bed and she, she had died. Things changed later when I joined the program. When I started attending the Compassion Project, I was learning about the Bible, but the most important thing for me was that I was receiving food. I got an opportunity to go to school. Uh, with a pair of school uniform, with a pair of shoes. My mother heard about a church that worked with children. They're taking care of me, tutors, a pastor, a compassion director. Words are very powerful. My life was changed because someone told me, I believe in you, I love you, and I know you will succeed in life. My sponsor was a college student from Michigan, and in the first letter, she just told me that she wanted to make room for me. My sponsor, he was eight years old when I was nine, so he was one year younger than me. One decision to make room for one more changed my life. Saved my life. Saved my life. Will you make room for a child that needs you? Will you make room for one more? It's up to you. My name is Rafael. My name is David. My life was changed by a 26-year-old college student. Her name is Joan. Gail and Roger. Her name is Jamie. My sponsor made room for one more. And that one more. And that one more was me. Was me. Sponsor a child through compassion today. Release a child from poverty in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.
So guys, I don't, like I said, I don't know how many of you guys have been in those situations, but I've walked those streets before. I've been in those huts before. And I can remember in Venezuela in a real uh, rough area up in Palo Gordo in the mountains uh, uh, one time and walked into this room and the guy's just extraordinary cancer. Some of it was external and it was in there with his wife and his kids. And, you know, we were singing heaven is here a while ago. You know, and heaven is here, right, for us. Heaven, heaven's here. I remember telling this guy, you know, hey, God loves God's present, and God's here. That's what the little girl said. God's here. Hey, I'm going to tell you, that's rough. That's tough to look at that little girl and say, yes, he is. But just look at her and say, yes, he's here through us. How can we help you? How can we help you? You have a chance to do that today. You have a chance to do that today. To tell all of those kids around the globe, yes, he's here. He's here. He's here through us. We do that through compassion. So, um, Scott, I think we're ready, man. My family's ready. Scott, tell us what we need to do next. Okay, it's, it's really easy. Um, in your seat or near you is a packet, and it looks like this. Okay? Um, so you either have that in your seat or you have this in your seat. This is our overflow card we had to use in first worship in Shelby because we ran out of packets, which... God just does over and over again. Um, do you know who the, the church is? You know, everybody says the church is, is the building, and then they say, no, it's not the building, it's the what? Do you, listen, let's take it a step further. It's not the people in the building either. It's the Christ followers in the building. So I always wonder why we as pastors expect people that don't walk with God to act like they do. So the church is not the people in the building, it's the Christians, the Christ followers in the building, right? And I'm telling you, the church is doing okay. You hear all these horror stories about it. I know there's a lot of people in church that aren't Christ followers. I'm not saying that. But the Christ followers are getting it. And we're seeing this happen over and over. So we want you to do this. We want you to find the packets first. Let's run out of these before we complete these. Unless you decide you, because Hope Community is rescuing kids from Ethiopia and from Haiti. We've got trips already planned. To, and when I say we, I don't know if y'all know this, but I now go to Hope Community Church. We moved here to help take care of my wife's dad, who was the dad I never had. Um, probably, uh, other than Doyle, the, the most influential man in my life. He's got Alzheimer's now, and he's not doing great. And so we moved back home to take care of him, and it's an honor for me to do that. But we chose Shelby, Bullen Springs, because my wife and my daughter both went to Gardner Webb and because I love this church. I found it three years ago when I came to the Compassion Sunday, and I love it. I think I'm just going to retire and go on staff here and try to help the guys out some. But um, uh, no, <laughs> I'm about to get to that age. So if you could do this, if you sponsor the kids from Haiti and Ethiopia, you can go with us on the mission trips and meet your child. And I'm just telling you, you want to have your world rocked? That'll do it. And some of you are like, no, nah, I really don't want to have my world rocked. Can I just say, yeah, you do? Because I'm t just like Shawshank says, I quote too many movies. You got two choices. Get busy living or what? And too many people in church are dying. But not the Christ followers. We're living. And this is what you do. The packet is so cool. The $38 a month covers basic food. It covers some shelter. It covers protection, because all of our kids are known, loved, and protected. It covers school tuition. Remember, in most countries, you go to grade 14. In most countries, public school costs money. Private school costs even more. So poverty-stricken kids don't go to school. Those kids need to get their blankety-blanks in school. Okay, you're going to pay for it? Because it ain't like in America, where it's free, supposedly. Right? So it pays the school tuition, pays for their school uniforms, pays for their books, pays for safe transportation to school if they don't have it, right? Pays for medical care, gets, gets them a little bit of food. We don't feed them every day, but their most nutritious meals are at the Compassion Project, which is in a church. And it also, now I love this, um, and some people are like, is that a big deal? It's a big deal to the kids. It gives them a safe place for people to pour hope and love into them because they don't get it at home. And you only do it till they finish high school. And once they graduate high school, you don't, the sponsorship ends. You can rescue another kid if you want to, which is what we're doing, or you can just 
pray for, for your child that you help change their life. Um, they're, they then are plugged into the community. Either they go on to college. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but everybody's not supposed to go to college. Okay? Are you finding that out even in America? The, the uh, uh, trade schools just did a study showing that people that are in plumbing and, and electrical work and welding and painting, if they'll just show up, right? If they'll show up and do a good job, they're making six figures a year. While college graduates with a master's degree are, are at 39 with benefits. You get what I'm saying? So we understand that if these kids want to go to school, we help with that. If they don't and they, they're really good at cosmetology or metalworking or carpentry, then we put them in that. And when they are 16, 17, 18 years old, right before they come out of the program, they actually have a skill so that when they're released from the program, they're changing their community and no longer need people's help. So here's the deal. It's not throwing money at it. It's life transformation. Are you hearing me? That's what the $38 a month does. That's, and it kind of tells you that on the top, on the back of the top piece of the card that you have near you, okay? Um, we want you, I ho hope you can hear this. We want you to keep the top two sections. Middle section tells you more about your child and their community. Just tear off the bottom piece, complete the front and the back of that, and bring it to the kitchen tables, okay? Uh, we'll be up here. Caleb and I will be up here. Jeremy, some of the uh, Compassion volunteers are going to be here. Just bring that bottom piece to the table. Some of you have a business that could sponsor 10 kids and let your business pay for it because it's completely tax deductible. Did you hear in the video? That guy's name's David, by the way, from Kenya, who said his sponsor was eight years old and he was nine. Um, had True story. This happened at a church in Denver, North Carolina, not far from here, last year. Um, had a, a guy walk up to the table. He says, listen, I own a body shop. I got eight employees. I'm going to let my business pay for it. And I'm going to sponsor eight kids and let each one of my employees be the sponsor. I'm going to pay for it, but I'm going to let them be the sponsor. Four of his employees were not Christians. And he said, I am praying my compassion kids will lead them to the Lord. By the way, that happens a lot where the compassion kid leads their sponsor to Jesus, which is crazy, right? Um, and I said, yeah, you can do that. Um, just And if you want to do that, we welcome you to do that, right? You just fill out one card, front and back. You tear the bottom pieces off the other five or six or seven or however many kids you want to rescue. We're not going to ask you to fill out that many cards. Just one will staple the cards together. But true story, nice-looking uh, older gentleman was waiting behind him. And when he finished, he said, now, I heard what he's wanting to do. I have 10 grandkids. Again, listen to me. I'm trying to look you in the eye, all right? I'm a salesman. I get it. Um, but I'm telling you the truth. This really happened in Denver, North Carolina. Walks up and he says, I've got 10 grandchildren. I'm going to sponsor 10 kids. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to let each one of my grandchildren be the sponsor. Kind of like what happened in this video where someone else was paying for it, but the sponsor was the kid growing up with them. That is very common to, you know, let one of your kids or grandkids. He said, my idea is I'm going to pay for it. And when I go to heaven in a few years, they're going to be the ones sponsoring the kids, and I'm going to leave that legacy of generosity with my kids, my grandkids. Now, I don't know about you, but you realize that all the little goodies that we amass as we get older, we don't get to take that with us. But leaving a legacy like that follows you even into heaven, right? So that's what you're going to get to do today. I hope you hear this. Don't take the packet with you till you tear off the bottom piece and bring it to the table. But once we run out of packets, that's when we'll fill these out, okay? And if you want, don't want to rescue a kid, we had this happen in Shelby. If you don't want to rescue a kid from Ethiopia or Haiti, but you have a heart for Thailand or you have a heart for Kenya or whatever, just write that on here and bring that to me, okay? Any questions? You got it? Walk around the room, find the packets. They're all over the room. It's a divine appointment. One of the little girls that Jeremy told you, um, that story I told you that I, we were at a church their focus country was Brazil. If you've ever been to Brazil, everybody there is beautiful, men and women. And anywhere the people are beautiful, sex trafficking is rampant. And so I said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this little divine appointment thing and put it to the test. And I'll end with this. And I told my wife, I said, so we want to rescue a little girl from Brazil. And if, if I have a girl under me, then we'll rescue her. I was doing a little test with God. So I reached down, and under my left cheek, I pulled out, the, <laughs> pulled out the packet, and it was a little girl. I handed it to my wife who was sitting beside me. This is a true story. 
I had, her name was Lara Jennifer. I handed it to Kim. And I said, we well, fill that out, because then I had to go and speak like I'm doing now. And she said, whoa, 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 did you even look at the packet? And I said, well, yeah, it's a little girl from Brazil. She said, did you look at her date of birth? Her, I'm True story. Her date of birth was the day my mom went to heaven. How crazy is that? That's what God does. That's what God does. And I'm praying you're going to let him do something like that in you. Can I ask everybody to stand? Thank you for your patience today. I know we went a little long. You know how when you get two preachers preaching, right? Um, I'm going to pray for us. You fill out the cards. Bring them down to the table, the bottom piece. If you get a chance, please head to the Shelby campus and go through the experience. It's worth the 20-minute drive. Free of charge. You don't have to have reservations. And I want you to know it's been an honor to be here with you today. Let's pray. God, I just love you. I do. And I pray when I say stuff like that, it's evident in my life. Man, we all say we love you. And then we see needs when we walk out of church and we don't do a thing about it. So do we really love you? You prompt us to pay for the groceries and the young couple at the grocery store in front of us or behind us. Eh, I'll let somebody else do that one of these days. God, one of these days never comes. Today is the day for us to be the church. Not talk about it, not go do it, but to be the church. And it'd be so cool in about two weeks if 200 kids in Ethiopia and Haiti found out that some people in Lawndale and Shelby and Kings Mountain and the thousands of miles away, they found out they had a rescuer that cared about them enough to make room for one more. And I pray we'll do that today, Lord, and that you will rescue us right back. And God, I pray this. I thank you for teaching me that maybe what it's about is me living more simply so others can simply live. Thank you for those lessons. In your name I pray, amen.